the next section uh, is mindfulness of breathing. In ancient times and still today, mindfulness of breathing might well be the most widely used method of body contemplation. The Buddha himself frequently engaged in mindfulness of breathing, which he called a noble and divine way of practice. According to his own statement, even his awakening took place based on mindfulness of breathing. And uh, I thought, by way of um, illustrating that a little bit, there's one of the um, sections of the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses, is the Anapana Sangyutta, so the Connected Discourses about breathing. And um, this is uh, the Buddha's own comments about, um, or uh, the whole section is about mindfulness of breathing, and, but this particular sutra is the one that uh, Venerable Analayo is referring to. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Ichanagala, uh, Ichanangala, uh, in the Inchanangala wood. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, I wish to go into seclusion for three months. I sh- uh, should not be approached by anyone except the one who brings me alms food. Yes, Venerable Sir, those bhikkhus replied, and no one approached the Blessed One except the one who brought him alms food. Then when those three months had passed, the Blessed One emerged from seclusion and addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, if wanderers of other sects ask you, in what dwelling, friends, did the Blessed One generally dwell during the rain's residence? Being asked thus, you should answer those wanderers thus. During the rain's residence, friends, the Blessed One generally dwelt in the concentration by mindfulness of breathing. And then he says um, later on, if anyone, Bhikkhus, speaking rightly, could say of anything, it is a noble dwelling, a divine dwelling, the Tathagata's dwelling, it is of concentration by mindfulness of breathing that one could rightly say this. So that's no small statement. Uh, <clears throat> if anyone could say of anything, it's a noble dwelling, a divine dwelling, the Tathagata's dwelling, uh, it is of concentration by mindfulness of breathing that one could rightly say this. And dwelling, I think there is the translation of the um, Pali word vihara, a living place. Mindfulness of breathing, that one could rightly say this. That sentence goes, If anyone, because speaking rightly, could say of anything, it is a noble dwelling, a divine dwelling, the Tathagata's dwelling, it is of concentration by mindfulness of breathing, that one could rightly say this. So, so that's a, a fairly emphatic statement on the part of the Buddha about uh, the, um, uh, the quality of mindfulness of breathing and how it's a sort of favoured abiding place of vihara. So if one is going to live somewhere, then one is going to put the mind onto something uh, and dwell there. Uh, uh, then mindfulness of breathing is a, 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 a divine and a noble. And also that uh, the, what is the dwelling of the, uh, of the Tathagatas, of the uh, enlightened ones, the, the, uh, the thus come one, the thus gone one, that is in mindfulness of breathing is an appropriate response. 
The discourses present mindfulness of breathing in a variety of ways. The Satipatthana Sutta describes four steps of the practice, to which the Anapanasati Sutta adds another twelve, thereby forming a scheme of altogether sixteen steps. That's to say, uh, the, what you have in the Satipatthana Sutta that's being um, commented on here, you have what's called the first tetrad, or the first group of four, and then in the Anapanasati Sutta it goes into um, a, a detail with a, a, a further three tetrads, a further three groups of four. And what you have in the Anapanasati Sutta, the Discourse on Mindfulness of Breathing, is that uh, using the, the breath to explore each of the four uh, areas of the Satipatthana. So you have um, the, uh, <coughs> the, the quality of the breath known through the body or as, as a physical experience, and then the breath uh, looked at through the experience of feeling, uh, the breath looked at through the experience of, of mind, uh, of, uh, uh, of the third Satipatthana, and then the breath uh, uh, explored through the, uh, the, the, um, the lens of wisdom, or the uh, investigation, uh, of, uh, uh, particularly of Anicca. So uh, the Anapanasati Sutta and the Satipatthana Sutta, the mindfulness of discourse on the, um, uh, the, the foundations of mindfulness, or the, the presence of mind uh, and mindfulness, and the Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta, they're something of a pair. They, they function closely together. And uh, it's like the uh, Anapanasati Sutta talks about how to develop all of the four foundations, all of the four Satipatthanas, through the, the gateway of the, the breath. And uh, uh, incidentally, um, uh, as we, we go along, and you might be interested in particular uh, commentaries, that the, the Anapanasati Sutta itself is... Sutta number 118 in the Majjhima Nikaya, and there's a couple of, of very um, sort of classical and standard commentaries on it in English. Firstly, one done by Ajahn Buddhadasa uh, quite a number of years ago that's just called Anapanasati, uh, which is um, quite accessible and goes through um, uh, through the, the, the sutta in a fairly systematic way. And then... Uh, the more recent one is by a man called Larry Rosenberg, and that's called Breath by Breath. And uh, that's a, a very, very readable and accessible uh, um, description of Anapanasati. Uh, and it's written a bit more for the Western readership, but it's also quite uh, true to the, the scripture. And, uh, and the four sections of, of Larry, Larry Rosenberg's book uh, are called uh, Breathing... Uh, Breathing with the body, breathing with feeling, breathing with the mind, breathing with wisdom, if I remember that correctly. And uh, it goes uh, through in a very helpful way, and I, I believe we have copies of that in the library. So if you are interested in reading more about the Anapanasati Sutta and looking into that in more detail, then those are two really uh, useful resources, Ajahn Buddhadasa's book and Larry Rosenberg's book. So the Satipatthana Sutta describes four steps of the practice, to which the Anapanasati Sutta adds another twelve, thereby forming a scheme of altogether sixteen steps. Elsewhere, the discourses speak of mindfulness of breathing as a cognition, sanya, or perception, 
and as a concentration practice. These various presentations demonstrate the multifunctional character of the process of breathing as a meditation object. This much is also documented in the range of its possible benefits, which include both penetrative insight and deep concentration. As a meditation practice, mindfulness of breathing has a peaceful character and leads to stability of both posture and mind. The mental stability brought about through mindfulness of breathing acts in particular as an antidote to distraction and discursive thought. Awareness of the breath can also become a stabilizing factor at the time of death, ensuring that even one's last breath will be a mindful one. Those last two references, uh, the one about um, antidote to distraction, that's particularly a reference to the Megiya Sutta, uh, the advice that the Buddha gave to this uh, monk who was um, determined to go off and practice by himself and whose uh, uh, description of, um, of uh, going against the Buddha's advice and going to, to meditate by himself in a, a, uh, a lonely glade, then his mind got uh, taken up with all kinds of uh, confusing and afflictive uh, states and then uh, when he came back to see the Buddha at the end of the day then the, the description of the of, um, advice for practice that the Buddha gave part of that was he said practice loving kindness to overcome ill will practice um, uh, the reflection on the 32 parts of the body to overcome sexual desire uh, practice mindfulness of breathing to uh, to uh, overcome distracted thoughts and um, and then to practice the reflection on impermanence to uh, to overcome the conceit of, of identity. So within that, that explanation to Megia, then the Buddha particularly names mindfulness of breathing as a way of uh, working with distracted thinking. And then the, 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 uh, the latter reference about the last breath, that's in the Buddha's advice to his son Rahula in the... Uh, the greater discourse to uh, Rahula, the Maha Rahulovada Sutta, and that particular passage comes at it's a Sutta number sixty-two in the Majjhima Nikaya, middle length discourses, and it's the very last paragraph of that Sutta. So it's Majjhima Sutta sixty-two, paragraph number thirty, right at the end of the Sutta, and it's uh, with Rahula being given advice about uh, mindfulness of breathing. According to the Satipatthana Sutta, the practice of mindfulness of breathing should be undertaken in the following way. Here, gone to the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut, he sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, and established mindfulness in front of him, mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows, I breathe in short. Breathing out short, he knows, I breathe out short. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, calming the bodily formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, calming the bodily formation.
The instructions for mindfulness of breathing include the appropriate external environment and the suitable physical posture. The three kinds of places recommended for practice are a forest, the root of a tree, and an empty hut. In the discourses, these three usually indicate suitable conditions for the practice of formal meditation, representing the appropriate degree of seclusion required for mindfulness of breathing or other meditation practices. According to modern meditation teachers, however, mindfulness of breathing can be developed in any situation, even while, for example, standing in a queue or sitting in a waiting room. And there's advice given by Bhante Gunaratana and uh, Ajahn Kantipalo. As well as describing the external environment, the Satipatthana Sutta also specifies the proper posture. The back should be kept straight and the legs crossed. In the discourses, this description of the appropriate posture for meditation occurs not only in relation to mindfulness of breathing, but also in the context of several other meditation practices. Although this does not imply that meditation should be confined to the sitting posture only, these occurrences nevertheless clearly underline the importance of formal sitting for cultivating the mind. And as the predominance of people sitting on chairs, <laughs> even though the, the customary posture for, for practicing meditation and listening to Dhamma talks is sitting on the floor, uh, nowadays the, um, the prevalence of stiff joints and um, rusty hips, uh, etc., uh, is quite, uh, uh, quite widespread. And so uh, more and more uh, people find they need to sit on chairs or stools or various different devices structures uh, and so uh, uh, as probably everyone here is is very familiar with the emphasis is uh, given on um, sitting in an upright posture so sitting with the the back straight so rather than slouched on the chair like I am at the moment the if I'm sitting in a chair for meditation then to be holding the body upright so whether the the, the knees or the hips are, are cooperating uh, or not uh, is secondary uh, is recognized as being secondary and the, the upright nature of the posture and the, the body holding itself up is, um, uh, is seen as the ideal, particularly because of the, uh, the sort of quality of uh, energy and alertness that that upright posture uh, lends to the mind. But uh, also, just as he points out, you can practice mindfulness of breathing in a waiting room or in a in a queue, uh, if you uh, if you can't sit upright, your your body you know, you're sick or you're so weak, and all you can do is so you're uh, stuck in in bed. Um, yeah, or, or you can lean against the pillows uh, if you're ill and such like. Then it's it's totally possible to still practice mindfulness of breathing and uh, to have that as a, a useful and uh, effective practice and. Um, it's highly unlikely that uh, those, if you're if you're following your breath right up to the very last breath, as is in the in the advice to Rahula, it's unlikely that I mean, maybe a few people are sitting perfectly upright as they hit their last breath. But usually, uh, even the uh, great beings are lying down by the time they they reach their last breath, as the Buddha was. That he was in the lying down posture when he took his own last breath. So that uh, when speaking about posture, it's um, uh, and as in general with with um, Buddhist principles, it's 
um, there's a format or there's an ideal that you, uh, you that you take and then you work with that according to what your own uh, limitations uh, allow. Well, yeah, I know Lee hasn't been able to sit on the floor for years. <laughs> well, his version of Jhana, anyway. His version of Jhana. <laughs> Which is another story. <laughs> In the discourses, this description of the appropriate posture for meditation occurs not only in the relation of mindfulness of breathing, but also in the context of several other meditation practices. Once the posture is set up, mindfulness is to be established, quote, in front, unquote. The injunction in front, parimukhang, can be understood literally or figuratively. Following the more literal understanding, in front, indicates the nostril area as the most appropriate for attention to the in and out breaths. Alternatively, in front, understood more figuratively, suggests a firm establishment of sati, sati being mentally in front, that uh, you're making that sort of more important or placing, making that the priority, in the sense of meditative composure and attentiveness. Both the Abhidhamma and the commentaries take in front, quote-unquote, parimukhang, to indicate a precise anatomical location. And that's the, the nose tip and the upper lip. Uh, in the discourses, however, the specification in front, parimukhang, occurs in a variety of contexts, such as, for example, in relation to overcoming the hindrances or to developing the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes. Although overcoming the hindrances can occur with the aid of mindfulness of breathing, this is not necessarily the case. In fact, the standard instructions for overcoming the hindrances do not mention the breath. Similarly, the discourses do not relate the development of the divine abodes in any way to awareness of the breath. Apart from awareness of the breath, however, to direct, uh, to direct mindfulness to the nostril area makes little sense whether in relation to overcoming the hindrances or to developing the divine abodes. Thus, at least in these contexts, the figurative sense of in front as a firm establishment of sati is the more meaningful alternative. And uh, I was having a discussion, I think, with the Anagarikas the other day, yeah? so, uh, about exactly this, this point, when it says placing mindfulness uh, in front of you or before you, that... Um, it, uh, there is that question. Well, what does that what does that mean? And and I echo um, uh, Venerable Analio's uh, um, interpretation here that it generally has the more figurative sense, meaning it's you're making it the priority. Like, okay, let's be mindful. It's like, okay, let's pay attention, and uh, placing mindfulness before you um, rather than than specifying the uh, a particular area of your face or where the where the breath is felt. So uh, that, uh, I feel, does make much more sense. And as he points out, the same expression is used 
but in practices that don't particularly involve the body or the breath at all. So it necessarily that word parimukhang must have a, a bit of a broader meaning. Therefore, although to understand in front, quote-unquote, to indicate the nostril area makes a, a sense in relation to mindfulness of breathing, alternative ways of practice based on a more figurative understanding of the term cannot be categorically excluded. In fact, several modern teachers have developed successful approaches to mindfulness of breathing independent of the nostril area. Some, for example, advise their pupils to experience the breath in the chest area. Others suggest observing the air element of the abdomen, while still others recommend directing awareness to the act of breathing itself without focusing on any specific location. Uh, and um, he uh, uh, gives a list of, uh, of where different meditation teachers uh, talk about focusing. And, um, and so uh, Ajahn Chah used to have a, a variety of different methods. He said, if uh, you're establishing the attention on the breath, then you start off focusing it on, on three, uh, uh, three areas. Uh, firstly, in uh, the, um, at the nose tip, and then in the chest, and then the abdomen, and you sort of follow the breath down, and then follow the breath back up from the, the nose tip to the, the, the chest, and then the abdomen, and then the chest and the nose tip again. You know, clearly noting it in those three spots, and then he would say, uh, and then when the, the uh, attention is, uh, is grounded and is, uh, is uh, focused on the breath, then just simplify that to, to, simpl- to focusing on the breath as it enters and leaves uh, uh, at the... Uh, at the nose tip and, and the feeling the passage of air over the the upper lip uh, and nostril area. So that would be Ajahn Chah's particular approach. Mahasi Sayadaw um, would uh, uh, have the uh, abdomen, the rising and falling of the of the abdomen, or low, so you know, lower down in the body as the uh, the focal point. And then various other teachers would encourage uh, focusing it in different areas. Uh, those of you who've read Ajahn uh, Lee Damodaro's book uh, Keeping the Breath in Mind, uh, translated by Ajahn Tanisaro, will know that the whole relationship to the breath is, is much more expansive and that the, the breath also includes the sort of body energies and so you're tracking the breath through, you know, breathing through the, through the top of your head or out through your fingertips or you know, following the breath down through your limbs and out through your feet and, and it's still called the breath. And it's also interesting that uh, even though you might think, well, that's a bit extreme, I and mean, you haven't got you know, carbon dioxide coming out of your feet or out the, the top of your head. But the word uh, pana in Pali is also uh, the, uh, the equivalent in Sanskrit is prana. So what we think of prana as energy or chi in, in Chinese, that's the, uh, the uh, correct pronunciation. That is also called breath. So that the prana... Um, of the, the sort of gaseous uh, prana of the the uh, the air entering and leaving the lungs, is the same word as used for the energy moving through the body and through the channels and the the various different meridians and, and nadis and whatnot um, through the body's energy system in, in say Chinese medicine or Tibetan medicine, and uh, so in uh, in Ajahn Li Damodaro's uh, description of Anapanasati, he very matter-of-factly talks about uh, breathing through the, the the top of the head, or through, or moving the breath through the body or through the limbs, and and uh, Ajahn Tanisaro speaks in a very, uh, in his customary, very authoritative way about moving the breath around and 
uh, following the breath through the limbs and so on. So it's good to understand that there's 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 a, a substantial uh, basis for talking about the breath in that way. It's the the same word is used the pana of breath and also the breath energy are sort of are um, so in the language the way the language works they are sort of they are synonymous qualities. So it's not completely outrageous when he says talk, breathing through the top of your head or through your hands or through your feet that it's uh, um, it's not totally weird, in other words. <laughs> you don't have that kind of description in the suttas, as far as I'm aware, uh, but that, that uh, there is a basis for, uh, for that. And the expression, uh, uh, the wind in the limbs, is uh, there in the Pali as well. And that um, the, uh, so when talking about the physical health or physical well-being and, and th- various kinds of sicknesses, then um, that uh, that expression that you get uh, 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 in the um, in the in the Pali talking about the body is is also pana the the, the wind moving through the limbs or the wind the wind uh, stiffening in the limbs if the body becomes um, paralyzed and such like then that's also pana. I don't know if you remember, but Adnan he actually spent some time in India and uh, you know, actually had quite a bit of contact with yogis. And I see the seven points, you know, I don't know if it was before him or after, you know, but it was particular kind of a... I think it was, I think it was in India. I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure you're right that it was in India, he learned... I mean, yeah. sort of um, meetings of Indian teachers. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. <clears throat> Having described the appropriate environment and posture, The Satipatthana Sutta instructs the meditator to breathe in and out mindfully. Next, the meditator should become aware of the length of each breath as long or short. The point here is to be aware of the long and short breaths, not consciously to control the length of the breath. Nevertheless, the progression from knowing longer breaths to knowing shorter breaths reflects the fact that the breath naturally becomes shorter and finer with continued contemplation, owing to increasing mental and physical calmness. Uh, I would um, question that from personal experience and also just uh, talking with people over the years, um, that sometimes when the, uh, the, uh, the body becomes calm, uh, what, uh, the breath will slow down, but it's not, uh, uh, it's not the case that that each in-breath or out-breath becomes shorter, it can actually, even though the amount of, uh, of air entering and leaving the body might become less, uh, the, uh, the length of an in-breath or the length of an out-breath can, can extend. Uh, and so that a single um, uh, so inhalation or a single exhalation can take a long, long time. And so uh, uh, I would uh, respectfully um, uh, say disagree with with him with Tan and um, with Bhikkhu Analio here saying that um, that the long breath is necessarily when the concentration is more coarse and the short breath is when the the um, the concentration is more refined. Uh, in fact, one uh, I'm just uh, bringing to mind one fellow um, uh, that I met in the in the States who has extremely um, developed powers of concentration. He was a concert pianist. And oftentimes musicians uh, have a very uh, 
uh, acutely developed ability to concentrate, and um, he was he also was one of the uh, the staff members at uh, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. So he worked on the staff there, but he also he and was a meditator, but also his his other life was as a, a pianist, and. Um, he was uh, uh, he he was talking about this particular experience of how as his mind got more and more concentrated his breath would slow down, and so he um, he decided to, out of curiosity to, to to measure it one time, and um, so he <coughs> he uh, um, sat down in meditation. I think he had a uh, if I'm remembering correctly he put a timer in front of him and put a, an alarm on for an hour. And uh, and his uh, his concentration uh, abilities were quite extraordinarily refined, and so he uh, he um, um, put the put the the uh, the, the clock uh, on, and then um, uh, I, I guess uh, had the timer going from after the meditation had had begun, and. Um, <clears throat> he said, "Okay, well, let's just, just see where my mind is as, as quiet as, as possible. How uh, how many breaths I actually take within the space of an hour?" And he, I think, if I'm remembering, it was a conversation was a long time ago, twenty years ago or so. But if I'm rem- remembering correctly, he um, <clears throat> he tried it at a few different levels of concentration, and that he said that um, uh, that he. His his breath would would uh, slow right down until there was like you know three or four breaths in an hour or one breath in an hour. He said, and when his mind was was at the the calmest possible, he said uh, in an hour he'd only got like a, a, a halfway through one in breath in an hour. So a very very slow <laughs> in breath, and you know he wasn't lying or pretending. He had no reason to. And I certainly could see his abilities as a musician were, um, were quite extraordinary. He did a, a little uh, demonstration for the for the staff and teachers at at IMS after a retreat. He did a, a like a, a performance, and he was playing some of these. Um, I think they're called Chopin's Etudes. So Chopin wrote these pieces to test himself. So you'd have like the right hand doing five four time and the left hand doing seven eight time. And then, then they'd have to change over. So then the left would be doing five four, and the right would be doing seven eight, and this just exercises to make it really difficult for himself to 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 stay focused, and and yet also to make them into beautiful tunes. And uh, and so and he played some of these for us. I mean, I'm not a musician, but you could tell it was extremely complicated, and and uh, and these very very strange uh, rhythms and modulations that that he had to make and you realize you need to be really really focused <laughs> to be able to to play like that and you can understand if someone had been doing that for 20 30 40 years their capacity to to concentrate would be become very acute and it was no so it was no surprise to me that he could enter these very very refined states of of, of jhana and um how could he measure himself one breath an hour? Well, I, I guess he he set the clock going, and then breath. I mean, it's not just a question of clock; it's actually. He is a half a half an in breath, so he, I guess he could tell that. Okay, I'm still not. I'm uh, I'm about halfway through a single in breath. In deep concentration. 
That's what he says. You can be skeptical if you like. I felt he was being honest. Hmm? Well, uh, I wouldn't tell the, I wouldn't tell the story if I didn't think it was true. And uh, yeah, and also, you know, I've had similar experiences myself that um, that the the breath you know, when the mind gets very very quiet, the breath go you know goes uh, goes very very calm. I had a well, this is a, as a story also. Uh, <coughs> I um. Because Ajahn Pasano is senior to me, so he would always be the one ringing the bell at Abayagiri Monastery in California. So uh, during one of these winter retreats, I began to notice, isn't that funny? Every time he rings the bell, I take an in-breath. How curious. Every time, every time he rings the bell at the end of the sitting, then I take an in-breath. I thought, statistically, that's very unlikely. Because every single sitting, I always need to breathe in at the end of it. So then... <clears throat> and generally I, I use the listening to the nada sound as a meditation object and so uh, I thought, oh that's curious, how can it be that every single sitting when he rings the bell, I breathe in that's weird so I thought, okay now what's my, what's my breath doing during the, the meditation so I, I, instead of listening to the nada sound I started paying attention to my breath and I realized, oh, it's because I'm not breathing <laughs> For long periods, the breath is just quite still. But in the breath, when you concentrate it, and it becomes very, very refining, you can hardly hear it, and not see it disappears. Yeah. So is it because it disappears? It doesn't mean that you don't breathe. So that's really what. No, I, but the I'm just curious. the breath goes very, very quiet, and I was saying very, very refined, and so then when I paid attention to it. I could see that there would be an in-breath, and then a long gap, and then an out-breath. And then it would just, uh, after the out-breath, it would just be a, a, a long gap, and then uh, another in-breath. So that they were just within the space of a minute, and nothing like this, this fellow from IMS, but within the space of a minute, there would maybe like be, I don't know, two or three breaths in a minute. Well, that's all right. That's good. <laughs> we've, done that. we've done that. We've worked on that. We've done workshops on this with the breath, the buddhical breath. You know, three, three breaths in, you know, one, one breath a minute or something. Or, you know, maybe half a breath a minute or something. But the fact that in concentration you do, you know, maybe not without talking about jhanas, that the, the, the breath becomes so refined that you don't actually even know you're breathing. So it's like... Able to meditate, how do you move your breath? You have that just one breath in five minutes, don't you? I'm just curious. I'm not saying you're wrong, you know. Well, it appears that way, it feels that way, it seems that way, but is it actually truly really that way? It's dreaming, isn't it? You're not aware of your breathing when you dream, when you're asleep. Your body still breathes. Yeah, that's true, but that's that's not really the the point. The, the the point I was trying to make was that the the breath can go extremely quiet, and that also that it's different from in my self breath. Yeah. Yeah. I I had some experience with aqua balancing. I don't know. If you know. With what? Aqua balancing. That's a kind. Aqua balancing. That's a kind of. Um, 
healing uh, sessions in water. So you are uh, a person gives you a kind of um, healing in the water, but the person pushes you also underwater, and it's very relaxing. And um, I had a session. Uh, was really relaxed and and this person put me under water and I remember that I even um, I didn't need to to breathe anymore I didn't have to uh, I didn't feel that I need want to breathe because it was so relaxing that the, I experienced it this like um, and it's the press slow slow down very much mm -hmm. and also the person um, didn't. Um, hold me. My body just um, went down on the on the floor. Normally you you stay you, you stay on the surface. Yeah, but when you're very relaxed and there's no air in the room anymore, you, you go down. You sink down. Yeah, sink. So so it can't be um, just. Um, Also in uh, in Ajahn, in some of Ajahn Chah's talks, he he speaks about the same kind of area where the more the mind gets concentrated, the more the, the breath becomes subtle. And then he says sometimes it seems so the breath has disappeared altogether. The body stops breathing. He says you are still breathing, just breathing through your skin rather than through the through the lungs. James, yes. this Qigong master, and people told me that eyewitnesses that he, he could go to the bottom of the swimming pool and just stay there for an hour. And he said he was breathing through his skin, through from the water. He didn't need to breathe at all for an hour. Yeah, I haven't seen that myself, but I do feel this fellow Henry at IMS. I felt he was giving an accurate description of his um, experience, and so. But anyway, the point is that uh, I would say that. Just because the um, the mind is more concentrated doesn't mean to say the breath is is shorter, but it can be that it's uh, the breath is, is just moving very very slowly, or um, it can be modulating in different ways according to different people's dispositions. I think that I think the Fisulimaga says that in the fourth jhana there's no breathing. Mm -hmm. That's sort of like, or when you're in the skin. I think that's a description of the fourth jhana specifically that. They call it not breathing, but of course it might be very subtle breathing. Yeah, and I think Ajahn Chah is a very matter-of-fact description. And he also says, uh, if you realize that you're not breathing, don't panic. Because it does happen sometimes. People have that, that sense of, hang on a minute, when was my last breath? It's been half an hour. <laughs> and then they, they, they panic uh, because they think, oh my, you know, I'm, I'm going to die because I'm not breathing. But he would say, don't there's no need to panic because the the refinement of the the mind is such that the the the, uh, the, the oxygen is being absorbed through the the skin during that time. Apparently, that's a myth, Arjun, because <laughs> I brought up um, one of the Bodhidharma groups, and there was a a lady there that um, a teacher on um, social biology, 
and uh, she said it's impossible and I said I'll prove you wrong I'll go home because I, I read it by Arjun Lee so I went home and looked it up on the internet all the scientific stuff on it only a shrew can breathe through it there's one shrew one <laughs> apparently what happened is pranayana whereby a yogi or people that are practice a lot of meditation can breathe exactly one breath per hour, up to one breath per hour and still function because a normal person couldn't do that mm -hmm. but the, the ability to breathe through the skin it came about because of the Wizard of Oz the Tin Man when they, he had no he was completely covered that's right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So this kind of yeah he was sick for the rest of his life oh, yeah. uh, I think it's also in Goldfield when they painted the girl and had one bit of skin in her back Otherwise, she couldn't have. Something would have happened. But yeah, the fellow who played the Tin Man, uh, he was sick for the rest of his life yeah, on account of that uh, the paint they covered him with. But anyway, um, when Ajahn Chah says you breathe through your skin, I suspect that's not based on hard scientific data, but more the local folklore of what's happening when your body stops breathing ostensibly. But uh, the scientific resources of northeast of Ubon Province in the 1930s and 40s is probably fairly minimal. <laughs> yeah, it felt that way. So if, if you can't, if it doesn't notice his breath there, and there's no, there's no knowledge of it, then one would think, well, how will you breathe him? So probably that, that occurred, but scientifically it's not possible. You would have the feeling of that. Well, the, the nuts are still absorbing air without there being any movement. <laughs> Yeah, well, but uh, science, science, let, let's, let's, uh, uh, science, scientists have proved a lot of things, but then five years later are proved to be untrue. So when science, when, when the sentence begins, scientists have proved, then having been a scientist of sorts, think, oh yeah, right. <laughs> so, anyway, if we can continue, that uh, these, these uh, things are a subject of, investigation but maybe you can try it out tonight and see how how the states of refined concentration affect the uh, the breath or don't the discourse compares this progress to a skilled turner who attends to his lathe with full awareness of making a long turn or a short turn the simile of the turner suggests increasing degrees of refinement and subtlety in practicing mindfulness of breathing. Just as a turner makes progressively finer and more delicate cuts on the lathe, contemplation proceeds from long and comparatively gross breaths to shorter and subtler breaths. Again, I will continue to debate that. <laughs> and also particularly with, uh, uh, oh, Nick's gone home now, but the Nick's helpful comment about the, the short turn and the long turn um, meaning, as far as he understood it, and being a turner, the uh, the uh, length of the um, the piece of wood that you're you're working on, or, or whatever it might be, that it's a, a short turn would be if you're working on a short distance, but a uh, a long turn would be when you're working over a long distance and keeping your keeping your cut even over a long distance would require uh, much more sort of consistent and sustained uh, focus and care for for pressure. The Patisambhida Magga compares this progressive refinement of mindfulness of breathing to the progressively fainter sound of a gong after it has been struck. The third and fourth steps 
introduce a different verb to describe the process of contemplation. So the third in the Anapanasati Sutta, the third, oh sorry, in the um, the third and fourth steps of this first tetrad. So that that's the um, uh, he trains thus. I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus. I shall breathe out. So that the word uh, going from knowing goes from knowing pajanati to uh, to he trains sikati. In the Anapanasati Sutta, this training covers altogether fourteen steps, in addition to the first two steps concerned with knowing, pajanati. The use of the word training, sikati, indicates some degree of additional effort on the part of the meditator, owing to an increased degree of difficulty in these steps. Such training seems to entail a shift to a broader kind of awareness, which also includes phenomena other than the breath itself. In the scheme described in the Anapanasati Sutta, awareness moves through 16 steps, grouped in four tetrads, four groups of four, which proceed from the bodily phenomena of breathing to feelings, mental events, and the development of insight. So in uh, the Anapanasati Sutta, um, that uh, the, uh, it corresponds very closely to what you have in the Satipatthana Sutta, so body, feelings, mind. Uh, and, but then the fourth one is a little bit di uh, different insofar as in the Satipatthana Sutta, it's Dhammanupasana, is how it's, how it's described, but it, it focuses on um, different aspects of, uh, of experience, the five hindrances, the six senses, uh, the seven factors of enlightenment, four noble truths. Um, but in the Anapanasati Sutta, it focuses particularly on the quality of change uh, and anicca. And so that's, um, uh, in a way, that reflects sort of Dhamma Anupasana uh, as being uh, seeing things um, in terms of Dhamma rather than just Dhamma as. Because the word Dhamma uh, has two meanings one means mind object, uh, and the other is the, the, uh, the nature of reality. So. Uh, what it points to is that in the Anapanasati Sutta, that uh, fourth group, the fourth uh, tetrad, uh, refers very much to seeing things with wisdom. It seems things with, in, in the framework of Dhamma uh, rather than just Dhamma as with a small d, meaning mind object. So uh, and that's why Larry Rosenberg in his book then ref refers to that fourth section as uh, breathing with wisdom, so breathing with the body, breathing with feelings, breathing with the mind, breathing with wisdom, so that that fourth group is particularly related to uh, seeing things through the the uh, eye of Dhamma, as it were. Considering the range of these 16 steps, it becomes evident that mindfulness of breathing is not limited to changes in the process of breathing that covers related aspects of subjective experience. Undertaken in this way, mindfulness of breathing becomes a skillful tool for self-observation. The third and fourth steps of mindfulness of breathing, alike in both the Anapanasati Sutta and the Satipatthana Sutta, are concerned with experiencing the, quote, whole body, sabbakaya, and with calming the bodily formation, kaya sankara. In the present context, the whole body 
can be taken literally to refer to the whole physical body. Understood in this way, the instruction points to a broadening of awareness, a shift from the breath alone to its effect on the entire body. According to the commentaries, however, the quote, whole body, unquote, should be understood to refer more figuratively to the body of the breath. By understanding the whole body as the whole breath body, the instruction then indicates full awareness of the beginning, middle and end stages of each breath. This interpretation can claim support from the same Anapanasati Sutta, since the Buddha here identified the breath as a body, kaya, among bodies. An argument against this interpretation, however, could be that the cultivation of full awareness of the length of the breath was the task of the previous two steps, knowing a long or a short breath, which already required the meditator to be aware of each, of each breath from the beginning to the end. One would therefore expect this next step in the progression to introduce a distinctly new feature for contemplation, such as, for example, a shift of the awareness to include the whole physical body. And again, that, that does make sense to me. And so I would tend to interpret that, in, interpret that um, whole body uh, terminology as not just the, uh, the body of, of the breath and the lungs, but the, the whole physical body. And then, and particularly because of how it relates to the next step. And the next step of training is the calming of the bodily formation, quote-unquote, kaya sankara. Elsewhere, the discourses define the bodily formation as in, in breathing and out breathing. This dovetails with the second interpretation above, according to which the whole body refers to the whole length of the breath. The Patisambhida Magga and the Vimuti Magga indicate that this fourth step of mindfulness of breathing also refers to maintenance of a calm and stable posture, in the sense of calming any inclination to move. Thus the instruction to calm the bodily formations also implies an increase in general bodily calmness, an understanding that fits with the first interpretation mentioned above, taking body to refer to the anatomical body. In the end, both interpretations overlap, since the calming of the breath naturally leads to an increased bodily tranquility and vice versa. And as is the case with many of the other uh, aspects before, that the taking issue and saying, no, no, it means the body of the breath, no, no, it means the whole body, no, no, it means the body of the breath. <laughs> it's easy to grab an opinion, to get born into it, and then to argue and to not notice that you've created an argument and, and that you are not moving towards um, liberation, but you're moving towards uh, more conflict and confusion. So uh, again, with different interpretations of terminology, um, rather than say choosing a particular definition that then then one grasps and um, gets invested in, it's more helpful to take the the, the terms, uh, pick them up, explore them, weigh them against your own experience, and see what makes sense to you. And is and as uh, Venerable Analio points out, often both have a a a, a, a an element of meaning and a relevance, and as he says, uh, both interpretations overlap in this instance, since the calming of the of the breath naturally leads to increased bodily tranquility, 
and vice versa. So then just to finish this section, he says, Such calming of breath and body can then either become the basis for developing awareness of the inner constitution of the body, as in the subsequent Satipatthana exercises, or else lead to an awareness of feelings and mental processes, as in the 16 steps. In both cases, this constitutes a natural progression in which the establishment of a basis in bodily calmness enables awareness to proceed to subtler aspects of contemplation. I will now consider these subtler aspects by briefly digressing from the Satipatthana Sutta and examining further the scheme of 16 steps described in the Anapanasati Sutta. But I won't do that today. So any particular questions or further reflections on any, uh, any of this? Yes. I was thinking that the, the uh, Kaya Sankara, the second step, to me it makes sense if it's referring to um, bodily image. So it's more like your, your, your mental image of the body, because it does actually really change. And when you initially feel, um, so say you progress from uh, like a, a physical sensation type of awareness of the body, and a strong image of still having one, mm -hmm. <laughs> and what it looked like. Um, and then it, it, that starts to progressively change, and uh, you might sort of be aware of being a sphere, for example, and, and that's your, your image of the body. And then that, that, that also starts mm -hmm. to change and become more, um, well, less uh, strong or less solid mm -hmm. in some way. And then uh, and that's as you calm down, that's yeah, that's a good point. The, um, because uh, without the visual cues of being a particular size or in a particular um, posture, then the, the 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 inner sense of the the body's form and its shape and its uh, and its qualities does change a lot. And and and, and then as you uh, as you say, the more concentrated the mind or the more peaceful the mind becomes then that can become more expansive or uh, lim uh, sort of less less defined in terms of a boundary or disappear altogether now, oftentimes people have that experience in meditation that they feel they vanished um, or other strange bodily sensations I used to get this experience of feeling my hands were upside down. Who knows why? But it was just quite distinct. But just, and I, and I, sometimes I, I could just, this is ridiculous. They're, they're not upside down. They, but they really feel like they are. And I, I open my eyes. And I, no, they're the right way up. And I close my eyes. And... <laughs> so that the, the internal sense was for some weird reason saying that they were, they were upside down, but, but not. So, uh, uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't any kind of discomfort. It was just this: the uh, the, the mind creates an image of the body. And we were uh, a week or so ago. We were talking about the phantom limb experience, because the, we we're not aware that the body we experience is the mind's image of the body. And that when people lose a limb or like a finger or a limb, they can still feel that 
that limb being there and often um, with uh, painful sensations but just even feeling that it's there because the the mind is is um sort of creating that image and so you're perceiving that that image uh, of the body even though the, the physically the the piece is not there anymore and that uh, there was this um uh, one of the 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 cases i think in in uh, oliver sachs's book uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat is this woman who had uh, a, uh, a complete loss of body image. Her, her, her brain stopped being able to create uh, a, a, an image of her body, and she, so she, she was everything worked. All the nerves and muscles and the, the body was totally functional, but she had to learn how to operate it, almost like as if she was working a puppet, because her her, her mind couldn't create an image of it. So it was like wearing somebody else's body, and having to sort of move it around. Or like a suit of armor or something like that it was so really fascinating but that uh, when when the mind is very relaxed and peaceful then that need to have the body and the body's boundaries and limits and which way is up and which way is down doesn't really matter so much also because you're sitting still you're not having to interact with anything so it can loosen those those edges Yes, James. I was just wondering, can we actually ever know if we actually experience the body itself, or is it always a mental representation? We don't know. Well, do you know that Amravati exists? <laughs> it's meant to be the physical and mental experience. Is it all mental? It's all, all through the mind that we experience the body. Well, you get kind of corroborative evidence. Like if I, if I move the body across this way, I hear a sound and I get a feeling. And the feeling... Is my my brain is saying that that feeling is sort of uh, is south uh, southwest, it's down it's down on this side, and so that then that those kind of sensory impacts can keep giving you your clues. When a when a child is is born and they start to move around, they're bashing into tables and chairs, and that's what they're learning is where the the body ends and the 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 hard object begins, and they're they're building that that kind of image. But the um, you, as I say, you, you you can't be sure that the image that your mind is creating is what's actually there. But it's a, a good working model. And and then it's also as we develop different illnesses or, or dementia or uh, a, the aging process, then those those models don't work so well. We don't have the ability that our hearing or our sight or our balance or or orientation. That they, those things you know, stop the mind stops being able to make such a good model, so it doesn't interact with the the material world so uh, so effectively or accurately. And some pain could be purely mental, or it could be there's nothing physically. Yeah, well, like like phantom pain. Yeah, so you're sitting there, you're getting pains. It's not necessarily that there's anything wrong at all. It could be like to do with the mind just. Yeah, I mean, like sometimes you can you can feel like you know some some object just hit you on the head. You go like, "What? I'm sitting in the temple. Nothing nothing hit me on the head." But just the body registers some sort of you know a neural flash and says, and says, "Oh, what was that?" And it wasn't anything except a neural flash saying, "Object just hit you on the head," but it didn't. <laughs> Perhaps it was a baby yaka. A baby yaka could have been yes. Uh, if anyone spots any s- small or large yakas airborne in the temple, please. Uh.
inform the Sangha. Actually, I, was, I took part in an experiment where they put these special goggles on you and you sit at a table and you're supposed to put your arm under the table and in front of you is a false arm yes. and yeah. hand and I'll tickle the fingers with a brush mm-hmm. and then you start to believe that this false arm is actually your arm and you start to actually feel the sensation of the tickling. So you can be... You know, your brain can be convinced that this belongs to you, and actually, not only does it not belong to you, but it actually has no nerves in it. It's completely yeah. false. Mm-hmm. You can see it. You can see it. Yes. You can see, it. and then the visual cues tell you yeah. that's your hand. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen films of that as well. And the woman would be telling your awareness of the body. What had happened to her? I think she's still trying to work with her life. In the book, she was in her twenties. Hmm? No, no, no. She was. Uh, she went in for some kind of minor operation. I think she was about twenty-five or twenty-six. And it was um, a, a a non sort of uh, an unrelated procedure. I forget what it was. Something like an appendicitis or. A, it's a very simple operation, and it seems to have been something to do with the anesthetic and the way her body reacted to the, the surgery. But it was a, uh, it's also a fairly unique, if not completely unique, medical case. They'd never seen it happen before, and she was perfectly healthy, so she was like in her mid twenties, and then suddenly she had to learn how to operate her body from scratch. So, uh, and that she'd been quite sort of active, like swimming and riding horses and such like before, and she had, had to learn how to walk again. Everything, that's the, the strange thing, is that all the nerves and muscles and eye, her eyes and ears and everything functioned, but it, it was without having that body image to, to sort of put everything together. So it was uh, it's a, a, a um, curious case. So I imagine she's learning, how, or has learned how to function again as, in a regular life, but it's still fairly... Uh, Awkward or difficult. Well, I think that's enough for today.